hearing from the Lord this morning. What a solemn responsibility I feel after you've just sung that song um, to really point out Christ and his teaching from Luke 6 this morning as we continue in this study. I'm so glad to just go through the Gospel of Luke and know that every Sunday morning we are going to be presenting Jesus uh, from his word, whether it be a story about him or his teaching. And that's what we're in the midst of this morning, his teaching. This is actually a continuation from last week's message about uh, marks of a true disciple. How do you know if you're really a Christian? And this sermon tells us that. This is very familiar to the Matthew 5 to 7 passage, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is sometimes known as the Sermon on the Plain because of verse 17 where it says he stood on a level place. Um, it's, it's hard to know. I wouldn't say with certainty whether it's the exact same sermon or if he gave this at a different time. That really is not important. What is important is that we have here the words of Christ to his followers, and I think the message is designed for people to know whether or not they are truly saved. Isn't that an important question? Uh, there were two funerals this week, uh, one I participated in and uh, one Dave participated in for his aunt. One, for me, not knowing the person, I was unclear as, as far as whether the person knew Christ or not. There really wasn't a level of certainty for me. With Dave's aunt, there was a definite certainty that this this woman knew Christ and was in heaven. Isn't that an important thing to come to your end of your life and really know for certain whether you knew Christ? I can't believe that people can exist in a world of uncertainty and drive by cemeteries and go to funerals and just wonder. Can you, can you imagine the, the, the sleepless nights you would have if you didn't know if you woke up that morning, if you would really be in heaven? And so this is an important section for us to study for all of us to determine whether or not we truly know the Lord. We, we started last week by pointing out the difference between blessing and woe. If you look at the passage, uh, there's, all these, there's four blessings, four beatitudes of blessing, and then four counteractive woes to the, to the opposite of those blessings. And we said last week that blessing meant the favor of God resting upon us, and woe meant calamity because of the lack of the favor of God. And so what we want to discuss again this morning is, do you really want to be graced? Do you want to be blessed? Answer? Yes, you want to be blessed. Do you want the favor of God on your life? Yes. Here's what most people say. Most people will answer the way you just did. Oh, yeah, I do. I want the blessings of God. I want the favor of God in my life. But not many people want to live the kind of life that God blesses. You know what they want? They want God's hand to be like this in giving the blessings, but they want their hand to be like this to God. Like, give me all that I desire and bless me with your favor, but expect this from me, God. I am certainly not going to offer myself up for you, and, and I do not want to live the kind of life that you are saying is blessed. Isn't that astonishing? They want the blessings of God, and then you open up your Bible to Luke 6, and Jesus says, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, and you know what people say? Forget that. But still give me the blessings anyway. The life begins, of blessing begins, as we noted last week, and we won't review this, we'll just say what we said last week, blessed are you poor. And then if you look in verse 24, the, the contradiction is, woe are you who are rich. The life that is blessed by God begins with by our admitting our nothingness before God. We are spiritually poor. And woe to those who are spiritually rich. Woe to those who are full of themselves spiritually they can't admit their nothingness. And we know that that is the way we enter into the family of God. It says you are, yours is the kingdom of God. You enter into the family of God by admitting to God you have nothing to bring. 
and you fall completely on his grace. But that life continues, Thomas Watson said, by our ever complaining about our spiritual state. Okay? If you imagine that this is, I, I like to think visually for myself, like there's, a, there's a, an archway. Well, let's imagine. Let's, we have an archway here, right? So we don't have to imagine. Let's imagine this archway, and, and just on the other side is kind of figuratively the kingdom of God. Well, how do you get into that? What is the first step in getting into that? Blessed are you poor, right? Anybody alive today? Blessed are you poor. So to get into that, you have to come to God and basically say, I got nothing, God. Will you please accept me? I don't have any credit. My good works are nothing. I am nothing. Will you please accept me? And God says, you got it. And so you enter into that kingdom. That's what the, that's what the verse says. So yours is the kingdom of God. He becomes your Lord. You enter into the realm of his rule. And once you're in the realm of his rule, then it's all about you. Wrong, right? You still are spiritually poor. Okay, so the condition doesn't change. Will you notice that in your Bible? And we'll talk about this in a minute. Does the condition of hunger change? Look at the next verse. Does the condition of hunger change? Blessed are you hungry, because you're always going to be hungry. No, you will be filled. Does the condition of weeping change? Yes. Does the condition of persecution and hatred change? Yeah, you get rewarded. Does the condition of poor change? No. You remain spiritually poor. See what it says? It says you hunger now. You weep now. It doesn't say blessed are you poor now because you're poor forever. You don't, get, you don't get into the kingdom of God now and, and then God is happy you're there and you kinda, you got a lot of spiritual things to offer him. No. You continue to remain that way. Our spiritual poverty will never change. It's ongoing. We will always be deficient. We will always be bankrupt. We will always be dependent on the grace of God, which continues to reveal our need of Christ and our dependence on him. I'll say this as strongly as I can. You are not a Christian if you do not continually sense that spiritual bankruptcy in your own life. If you start to feel pretty good about yourself, and I'm talking once you're in the kingdom, if you, if you think you're in the kingdom, but, but you start feeling pretty good about yourself, you may really not be a Christian because that is a characteristic that continues to mark us and define us for eternity. So where do we go from there? That's the starting point. If you can't get past that, the rest of this isn't for you. I would say, this is the way I see the scriptures here, this particular scripture. Blessed are you poor, and when you admit your spiritual bankruptcy, the next three beatitudes are true of you, or they're results from your admitting your spiritual poverty. Okay, that's, that's the way I see it. I may be wrong, but that's the way I see it. So I want to talk about those three. I said last week we were going to finish it, and, and we're going to go through three, and we've got to go through them quickly fast. So where do we go from here? Here are the next three blessings. I'll give them to you first, and then we'll talk about each one. So the first one is, blessed are those who desire. The second one is, blessed are those who despair. And the third one is, blessed are those who are despised. Okay, so that's our outline today. Blessed are those who desire. That would be hunger. Blessed are those who despair, and that would be what? Weep. And then blessed are those who despise, and that kind of summarizes how people treat you as a believer. And there's lots of words listed. So let's start with number one. Blessed are those who hunger. And also, the, the, the opposites we'll talk about quickly as well. The opposite of hungry is full. The opposite of weep is laugh. The opposite of, of men despising you or ridiculing you or reviling you is that they speak well of you. And we'll try to get through all of that uh, very quickly. I'll talk fast. Blessed are those who desire. 
That's our first beatitude after you are poor. Remember, these are dependent upon you admitting your spiritual bankruptcy. The word hunger here means to be famished or to be starved. And I don't think Jesus is just talking about physically hunger, people who are physically hungry, because, and, and then soon that they'll be full, because if you're hungry right now, and you're going out to Famous Dave's for lunch, or you're, you, got a, you got something on the stove, or whatever it's going to be, peanut butter and jelly and cereal when you get home, uh, you'll be full. But you will not be filled, because filled seems to indicate a, a state of being that is over. You're going to get hungry again. So, so it's not talking about, you know, Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry, because you're going to be filled at some point, because then they'll just be hungry again. He's not talking about a physical hunger. He's talking about a spiritual craving, a spiritual desire. Blessed are those who have this spiritual desire. Listen to the way some of the Old Testament saints recorded their spiritual desire. And ask yourself and evaluate, is it, do I have this? Because right, this is the point. The point of the message is, do I really know Christ? Do I really know Christ? Not does my friend, does my neighbor, does the person sitting next to me, does the world? Do I? So, so when, you say, when you say you have this hunger, ask yourself, do I have it? Listen to the way the psalmist says. As the deer pants for the water brooks. This is Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This idea of panting, I mean, he uses the illustration of a deer. If you have a dog in the, in the, in the heat of summer, <laughs> right? they want that water. That's the idea, the desire. Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And then one more. Isaiah 26, verse 9. With my soul I have desired you in the night. By my spirit within me, I will seek you early. Amazing. What Jesus is talking about here in verse 21 is our desires, our cravings. Let me say this. The, the one who is blessed, the one who has the favor of God on them, the one who is the true disciple of Christ, craves and desires a relationship with God. And more than that, if you're familiar with the Bible, in Matthew 5 to 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, it adds, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They have a desire for righteousness. Let's be clear. This is not just a random kind of spiritual desire that everybody in the world has. Everybody has that. Remember we talked about that last week, and they try to fulfill it by meditation or through some spiritual guru or some cult, uh, even, even to the world of demonic things like seances. Or they they, they want to be connected to the spiritual world. That is not what it's talking about. It's talking about a craving or a desire to be right with God. To be right with God. And there's two ways to be right with God. The first way is just in your position. God, I want to be right with you. Because before we became saved, we sang it in the song, All I Have is Christ, we're running a hell-bound race. And, and we are... We are destined to have the wrath of God poured out upon us, and not just destined for it. John 3 says the wrath of God abides on the person who does not believe in Christ. And, we, and a person who decides, man, I do not want to be in that position. I want to be right with you. 
but I also want to be right with you on a day-to-day basis. I do not want sin clogging the relationship. I do not want to be living my own life. I want to be in a position of being uh, in your presence, have all my sin dealt with, have my guilt forgiven. I want to have purity and holiness and righteousness personally myself. Do you desire that? Do you crave and hunger for that? Hunger really is the sense of lack, right? It's the sense of lack. That's why your stomach, when, when you don't have anything in it, that's the way your stomach sounds or not, but I've heard some of them in church before. It's been so loud, right? You're, you're ready. And, and so that's why I see this as a result of spiritual poverty. You come to God and you say, spiritually, I have nothing, but I desire you. I crave after you. How would you describe your hunger? How would you evaluate yours? Is it, is it this? Is it God? I am unsatisfied without you. I need you and you alone. I am desperate for you. The words I just read from Psalm 42, 62, and Isaiah uses these words, pants, thirst, when, question mark, when will I see you? Early, thirst, longed, looked, desired. Does that describe your hunger? Or if you look in the passage, woe, verse 25, to those who are full. The word means satisfied. You don't feel the hunger pains. You have a sense of self-sufficiency when it comes to righteousness. You th- Here's the difference, okay? The hungry person says, God, I am desperate. I'm craving that good relationship with you. I want to be right with you. And the person who is full says, I'm good. That's right. I'm good. It's all good. Don't need God. And some of you say, I don't want him. Remember that weird story in Genesis 25 of Esau? Weird story. Remember, he's out... He's out hunting and he's hungry. Remember this story? He comes back and Jacob is cooking stew. Remember what he says when he comes back? Feed me. I am about to die, he says. This guy is an over, overstater, isn't he? Feed me. I am weary and I am about to die. I mean, he sounds like he's been hunting for a day or something. Maybe Even if he'd been hunting for a few days, I'm about to die? That is the type of, and he gives up, think about it, he gives up his birthright for a bowl of stew. That mirrors what our desire for Christ should look like. Give me Christ, give me righteousness, or I die. I must have you. This is a mark of a true disciple. They are willing to trade, like Esau did, all the things in the world to fill ourselves. And you know, what the, you know what the great thing is? What are you really trading away to be filled with Christ? What are you really trading away? Temporary satisfaction, right? Temporary goods, temporary uh, things in this world that, that, that only for a moment will satisfy. And say, give me Christ, who the passage says, verse 21, will fill us, will satisfy us completely. I think so many of us fill up on the desserts of the world that there's no room for the main course of Christ. And that's why it's a mark of a true disciple. Those who are full of themselves, verse 25, they don't have that desire. They don't need Christ. They're not. Those who are hungry sit in a service like this, like a starving man would sit before a feast. I mean, have you ever, like Esau, gone a whole day without food or something? Or maybe you're fasting for a specific procedure or surgery or something. Maybe just you're fasting for whatever reason. And you come to the time that you're going to eat and, and the... The food is set before you, and it's your favorite meal. What happens? What happens to you? Or what, what really happens to you? 
does, does, does anything physically happen to you? And your mouth starts watering? I mean, you, you just, it really does. You're ready to partake. I'm ready for this. You know, like, if you hadn't eaten for a week, let's say a week, that's ridiculous. If you hadn't eaten all day and the wife calls you or whatever calls you for the meal, hey, come on down. I mean, do they have to chase you down? Do they have to, you're, you're there. It's like you're sitting there, napkin tucked in, fork and spoon ready, and you're just waiting for it to be put down. But the person who is already full, I mean, this, this happened several times to Max this week who, or whatever when he was working and he'd eaten at weird times or we're sitting down to eat and he said something, no, no, I'm just sorry, I'm just not hungry, I just ate, right? And I'm like, this is a beautiful feast that has been prepared. And you're not hungry? Well, because he just ate. And, and so this is the attitude of a person who, what is your attitude when I say open to Luke 6? Or what is your attitude? Look at, look at those psalmists. Early in the morning I will seek you. I desire you. I want you. Is it like, fill me up with that word. I'm ready. Or is it kind of like, I've, I'm so full with other things. I'm trying to give you an illustration. of the, This is the idea, the anticipation of the satisfaction that comes. The promise there in verse 21 is that they will be filled. The woe to the other folks who are self-satisfied, they will one day hunger. Can you imagine those who are today separated from God forever, who were built and designed by God to be in a relationship with him for all of eternity, and today they are in hell with absolutely no hope of ever being connected to him. They shall hunger. I mean, that is why it is a woe to those people who are self-satisfied. They will constantly long to be right with God, and that satisfaction will never come Meanwhile, those who have admitted their poverty, those who have hungered here, will one day be satisfied. The Bible says there are pleasures at the right hand of God forever. And you were built for that, and you're going to receive that, and you will be full. But if you don't hunger for it here, what makes you think you really want it there? I've often wondered about that. I mean, we look around and we see empty chairs, and we all know of people that could be sitting in them. Why aren't they here? And is it a symbol or, or is, it a, is it a picture of their lives? Right? But they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian. And, and if you don't want it here, what makes you think you're going to enjoy it there? You know what I'm saying? I don't want anything to do with God's people here. I don't want anything to do with the Bible. But I certainly want to go to heaven. You know why they want to? Because they have a misunderstanding of what heaven is. And we've heard it before at funerals. For a golfer, they're on the links up in heaven. For a hunter, they're hunting in the backwoods up there. They've been reunited. I often, I often say they've been reunited. With, and reuni reunitings are going to be wonderful. But the point of heaven is not reunitings. It's not our indulgences. The point is I'm going to forever be satisfied with the God who I hungered for here. And if you don't hunger for him here, you're not going there. That's a sign of being a disciple. You hunger for him. Now that hunger wanes. We understand that. That desire can come and go, but I think usually it comes and goes because of sin that's in our life. I, I'm trying to be strong about it because I'm so desperate for you to understand because the woe is so extreme. This is not a, oh, poor you or unlucky you. You're going to hunger forever. This is an eternal uh, condemnation. Forever want to be right with God and never able to. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, says this about the person who is not hungry. Okay, or, or let me just read it because here's what he says. Watson states this. The one who does not have this hunger 
Again, we're evaluating ourselves. The one who does not have this hunger is concerned about the garnishes, not the food. He can sleep instead of eat. He is drowsy. He is not hungry. And he prefers other things instead. Think about that evaluation. Evaluate yourself. Listen to it again. Concerned about the garnishes, not the food. Right? I, like, I kind of like religion. I don't love Jesus. Um, he can sleep instead of eat. He, can, he can, is drowsy, not hungry. But how sweet and satisfying Christ is to his true followers. Would you agree? I mean, Christ is sweet and satisfying. Phonies and hypocrites pretend to love Christ, but they really don't. The true follower of Christ longs after this type of righteousness. As I mentioned, so many want to have the freedom from hell and punishment, but do not find Christ precious here. True disciples hunger for him, and someday that hunger will be satisfied. Psalm 34.10, those who fear the Lord will lack no good thing. I think we've said enough about hunger. Let's go on to number two. And again, the point is to evaluate yourself, not just to hear a nice message or to, be, to think, do I really hunger? Because if I do, then it confirms I'm a Christian. If I don't, then there may be an issue. Okay? Maybe an issue. Look at the next one. Blessed are you. This is verse 21. Let's look at it in the Bible. So we talked about the hunger, you shall be filled. And, and I know we're jumping back and forth because the counteractions, the woes are later. Woe to you are full, for you shall hunger. Let's look at the next. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And if you drive it down to verse uh, 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So they're just backwards. So let's talk about this. Blessed are those who despair. I call it despair just because of the letter D word for our outline. Blessed are those who desire. Blessed are those who despair. So here's the second result of the disciple who acknowledges his spiritual poverty. Not only does he crave God, he weeps. And he weeps over again what he lacks. In the Old Testament, weeping is seen for a variety of reasons, suffering, injustice, pressures, persecution, war, the absence of God's presence. And all of those are a result of sin. A true believer weeps over sin. And the word weep in this passage means they exhibit every external expression of grief. True believers really have a sense of pain and grief when they consider sin. Now let's, I want to say this, but I want to be sure you understand. Yes, we weep over the sin of the world, right? We weep when we see things like we saw a week ago in Virginia. We weep at that because that is a result of sin. We weep did you hear this? We, you should weep when you read things like what Iceland is doing with Down syndrome babies. Did you hear this? And it was promoted on like CBS. They're proud of the fact that they're eliminating Down syndrome by aborting every baby that has it. You weep when you hear. I mean, you ought to. We weep when we see, as we talk about in Sunday school, the culture being embraced by the church. We weep when we see our neighbors and, and friends and co-workers engaged in sin. There's no question about that. But, but let's think about it. Do you weep about your own sin? Okay? It's easy to weep about other sins. Do you weep over your own sin? And do you have a biblical mourning, a biblical weeping about that? I want to be clear about that. There is, a, there is a hypocritical and worldly weeping. Listen to this verse from, uh, second, you might write it down for your reading later, 2 Corinthians 7, 7, verses 10 and 11 says this, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, 
But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this, this very thing. You sorrowed in a godly manner. Okay, so there seems to be a sorrow that is in a godly way and a sorrow that's in a worldly way. Okay, so what is the difference? Well, we just went through the disciples together all summer, and you have Peter and Judas on opposite ends of the spectrum. But at the end of the ministry of Christ, both Peter and Judas did what? Failed miserably, denied, rejected Christ. I mean, utter failure. Peter, I will go with you to the death. And then a little girl, didn't you know him? No, I didn't, stupid girl. Curses on himself, and he goes out and does what? Remember what he does when, when, the, when the rooster crows, and it, the Bible says Jesus looks at him, and he goes out and does what? Remember what he does? Weeps bitterly, the Bible says. He wept bitterly. Judas, he goes up and kisses Christ in the garden. The Bible says he kept on kissing him. Deny, uh, denies him, betrays him. And after Christ is, is uh, under arrest and being tried, Judas kind of realizes there, and he shows remorse. I don't want this money. Take it back. He, it says he's very sorrowful. Remember when we studied Judas, we studied that word, that it just meant it wasn't a sorrow of a biblical sorrow. Will Peter be in heaven? It's not a trick question, no doubt. Will Judas? It's not a trick question. No way. One sorrowed in a biblical way, one sorrowed in an ungodly way. True godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's not, I, I wrote down four things as I just kind of thought about what is, what is real weeping. Here, here's, what I, here's what I say. We weep over our sin, not just the consequences of it. These are just some things that came to my mind. We weep over our sin, not just the consequences. I think Judas was weeping over the consequences. Peter was weeping over the sin. And again, we're not talking about the general sin or the culture sin. Yes, we weep over that. We're talking about our personal sin. Are we weeping over it? Second, we weep because we have offended God, not because we messed up. We weep because we have offended God, not because we have messed up. And let me just say the third one. The, the third one is, is going to be the last one. We weep specifically over our sin, not generally. Not generally. You ever prayed this way or thought this way? God, forgive me if I commit any sin today. It's kind of when you, before you go to sleep because you want to have a clean conscience. God, if I did anything wrong today, please forgive me. That's not this type of weeping. The self-examination that Psalm says, search me, O God, and know me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. True weeping is the blessing. Because it's connected with this, hatred of self, hatred of sin, and a desire to change, to turn from it. It is this type of weeping, the Bible says, that will eventually turn to laughing, to joy in God's presence. Why will there be joy in God's presence and not weeping? Because we'll look at ourselves and what will be gone? Sin will totally be gone. First John says, we will be like him pure and perfect, no wrestling over sin, no reason to weep anymore because sin and guilt and shame is gone, completely unstained. But, verse 25, woe to those who laugh now, who mock God, who mock sin, who never are sorrowful over it. Everything's a joke. Everything's a game. They mock God and his word. Well, Scripture tells us they will mourn and weep. 
Can you imagine the tears in hell for people who once, I, I often think of the, you know, as, as a pastor, I've had so, I've done so many funerals. And I almost, I'm almost sad to say probably the majority of them, I was unsure about the, the dead person. I was unsure. Um, I'd, I'd say at least half I was unsure. Because oftentimes I'd be doing a funeral for someone who was never in church, and that's, I know that doesn't always speak to their faith, but we just kind of said, if you're, not, if you're never connected to, to church or God's people, what, so I just often thought of the moment that unsaved person died. And, and many of you have, have relatives and, and friends that you have been earnestly praying for and the tragic nature of the moment of their death having an instantaneous knowledge that they were dead wrong about everything. And they mocked God. And they, uh, and they, they mocked his word and they mocked morality and they flaunted sin. And forever they're weeping over that. Not only is forever, they're, they're forever hungering for that relationship with God, they're forever mourning and weeping. Oh, it's, it's hard to even think about. Third thing. But you're blessed if you despair. You're blessed if you weep. And thirdly, you're blessed when you are despised. Listen, the person that hungers after God and weeps over their sin, that person doesn't fit in today's society. That person does not fit. <laughs> you admit your spiritual bankruptcy. You say, I'm nothing before God. You have this hunger for a deep and abiding relationship with God. You weep over your sinful state as well as the state of the sin that regularly produces the disharmony in our world. This is how you're going to be treated in verse number 22. Look at the words. Blessed are you when men hate you. That word means to have active ill will towards. The, it's the opposite word of the Bible that the Bible uses for being a friend of. The world will hate you. Second, it says the world will exclude you. That means they will separate from you. They will cast you out as wicked and abominable. Then it says, number three, they will revile you. That word means to assail you with abusive words. And then the last is they will cast you out. They will forcefully thrust you out. When we go through church history together, we will see that happen over and over and over to people who stood for Christ. This is how true followers of Jesus will be treated. How can that be a blessing? Hey, people hate me. People curse me. People revile me. People exclude me. Amen. What a blessing. Why? What's the passage going on to say? This life is not all there is. To be accepted in this life means to be rejected in the next. You choose. Oh, I want the world's acceptance in this life. I want the world's confirmation. I want affirmation. I want friendship with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God, James says? In that day, I love that, in that day, rejoice. When you are reviled, when you are hated, rejoice in that day and leap for joy in that some Put on a dance. <laughs> leap around for joy because your reward is great in heaven. There is another life where you will be honored, another life where you will be praised. Well done, good and faithful servant. Another life where people will speak well of you. You know, do I want my neighbors and 
and uh, co-workers to speak well of me or the Lord. There's more to this life than gaining a following and being popular and fitting in. One person wrote about these Beatitudes. The first is the way that the sinner sees himself. He sees himself as poor. He sees himself as hungry. He sees himself as weeping. The fourth one is the way the world sees the sinner. The world will slander us, accuse us, and hate us. And why will they do this? Because they hate Jesus. They hate being told they're nothing. They hate being told they're spiritual poor. They hate being told they must repent. They hate all the things that they will actually be blessed for. Look at Matthew chapter 10. We have a couple of extra minutes. Look at Matthew chapter 10 real quick on this, and and then we'll come back and wrap this up. Look at Matthew 10, very similar passage. Verse 16. It says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. That happened right away in Acts 4 and 5, or 3 and 4 with Peter and John. Brought before governors and kings for my sakes as a testimony to them. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. It will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Verse 21, brother will deliver up brother to death. A father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. How about when a Muslim trusts Christ and their parents want them put to death? You will be hated by all for my name's sake. There's a reason they hate you. They don't hate you because you're weird or strange. They hate you because they hate Jesus and you love him. And when they persecute you, flee. It it just continues this passage. But do not, verse 26, fear them. (laughs) John 15 also speaks of the hatred that a true follower will experience. It is expected. When it happens to you, and as a true believer it will, it isn't enough to be content or to just grin and bear it. You are supposed to rejoice and leap for joy. Spill over because a greater reward is coming. Well, to have this attitude, you must have a heavenly perspective. What was Jim Elliott's reward in this life, right? A spear in the side, floating dead upside down in the Curare River. What was William Tyndale's earthly reward? He was strangled and then burnt at the stake. What was John and Betty Stamm's earthly reward? They were dragged away from their infant daughter and murdered by communist Chinese soldiers. Jesus says, rejoice in that day. For those folks I just listed, That life is not all there is. And being treated like that is the sign of a true disciple. But the passage goes on, if you're back in Matthew, woe to you when men speak well of you. You know what I thought of when I thought of that? Woe to you when men speak well of you? It made me think of late night TV or talk shows. And people go on there and they talk about the latest and greatest cultural acceptance, which is contrary to scripture. And you know what the audience does? Oh, this is our hero, this celebrity who can act. This person who can read lines that are given to them, act sad. Oh, he's a hero. Give him an award. And then we want to hear this person's opinion about morality. And then they invite a person for kicks who may not even be a Christian but speaks about moral issues. Or imagine if they invited me on that and asked me about the culture. You know what everybody would do? Get him out of here. Drag him off. Right? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. And if you look at the uh, verse 23, rejoice because this is how they treat true prophets. It, it only proves we know Christ. 
because we are in good company. We are connected with Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Wycliffe and Stams and Jim Elliott. We're connected with those people. And no one's ever throwing a spear at you. They might just look at you cross-eyed. At least in this culture, we're so blessed. That type of suffering isn't worthy, Romans 8.18, to be compared with the glory that will come. In Acts 3 and 4, the disciples said they were not even worthy to suffer for his name, but they counted it a joy that they could. It's ironic that this is the beginning of the message that Jesus gives his followers to prove whether or not they're true Christians. Blessed are the poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. Woe to those who are rich, full, and laughing, and popular. And I ask the Lord that we would give an honest assessment of these things to be a, a hard evaluator of our hearts to see whether or not we are really true followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word. And the blessing it is to hear. It's like a freshness to it that comes after listening to the world's garbage all week. It's a refreshing.